Good morning, Redemption. My name is Warren, one of your pastors. I'm glad to be with you today as we are continuing on in our series through the letter of 1 John. So the other day I was walking into my house from my garage and I'm walking in and I hear a familiar movie playing on the TV in my living room. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. That movie is The Lion King. How many of you guys have seen the movie The Lion King? All right. Almost as many fans as Pickleball, so that's cool. <laughs> the Lion King, right? Uh, man, what a movie. Uh, it, I just love the journey it takes you on, right? The journey of Simba's life from the young prince, son of Mufasa, uh, to eventually becoming king. And it just so happens, right, that that movie has a part in it that's like a critical turning point in the story and also happens to be one of my favorite parts. And it's the part of the movie where Simba meets Timon and Pumbaa. You guys remember that part? And so if you remember the story correctly or you remember it, uh, how it went was that uh, Simba, right? He was part of the Lion Kingdom, but he gets expelled. He runs away in shame because his evil Uncle Scar makes him think that he is responsible for the death of his father. And so he runs away into a far off part of the kingdom and he's like lying there. Right? The vultures are circling ahead. It's like, if we stay outside too long, yesterday or today, that's, that's the scene, pretty much. And so the vultures are circling up above ahead, and it looks like he's at the end of his line, and then who shows up? Timon and Pumbaa, our favorite meerkat and warthog. They run in, and they rejuvenate Simba, and they kind of like are his animal therapists of sorts. Because uh, like all of what he was struggling with it, with his identity, he kind of forgets it, right? And before you know it, he's eating these bugs that look absolutely delicious. Um, and he's like singing songs that we'll never forget, right? Hakuna Matata. And he's just kind of living his best life, enjoying it the, at the moment right? for what it is. Totally forgetting everything that he's been uh, called into as a prince and all that sort of stuff. And so he continues that way until who shows up? Nala, right? Nala's like his little lion girlfriend of sorts. Um, and she shows up and she's like, Simba, you got to come back home. You got to come back home. And he's like, for what? Like, I'm living my best life right now. I'm vegan now. <laughs> right? New diet, new season, new me, you know? And so he doesn't go back, right? And you think, okay, well, I guess he, he won't assume that role as king until who shows up? Rafiki. Rafiki's the wise sage mandrill of the community, right? And what he does, what Rafiki does is he gives Simba this vision of Mufasa. And so Mufasa is able to speak to Simba from the clouds. And what does he say to Simba? In the best of James Earl Jones' voice. He says, you have forgotten who you are, right? <laughs> Y'all are something else, man. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right. He goes, you've forgotten who you are, right? You're more than what you've become. And he says, take your place in the circle of life. And there's this reality, right, that no matter how enjoyable it is for Simba in this current season of his life, that he was living out of alignment with his identity. 
Right? That no matter how much he was enjoying all those bugs in that time with Timon and Pumbaa, that wasn't who he was called to be. And so what Mufasa's call to Simba is this, embrace your identity. You have an identity to live from. And I think that grasping of our identity, grasping of our identity that actually shapes your life is what John wants the church to understand as we dive into this section of the letter today. Because what he says is that there is a way for the people of God to live that is in alignment with the identity that they've been given by God. So what we'll be exploring today is this. What is that identity? How do we live? What is this identity that we need to embrace that shapes the way that we live our lives? So that's where we'll be going today. You guys ready to dive into God's word? All right. So before we do it, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you Uh, Lord, that as we open your word, your spirit's at work, it moves in this place, and God, we pray that we would leave here shaped more and more into the image of your son, and so open our hearts, our minds, to receive your word today as your people. In your name, amen. All right, we're going to be starting off in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and I'll reread those verses for us here. It says this, and now little children, abide in him. So so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so the first thing that we see John tell the church is this. He says, remember that you are a people in waiting. Remember you are a people in waiting. And the way that you could be waiting for the return of Christ, the way that you can wait faithfully is by practicing righteousness. So he tells them to be prepared. Now, for my Lion King buffs in the room, this was not supposed to be Lion King themed or anything like that. I came up with this title way before I thought about the intro. And so we're not gonna be singing the circle of life after service today or anything like that. So John tells the church, be prepared, be prepared, right? And if we're just situating ourselves in the letter of 1 John. We're continuing along the path, and what we saw last week was that John was warning the church about the danger of the Antichrist, the danger of these false teachers who were coming into the community and drawing people away from Christ and to themselves. So he warns them, he says, don't be deceived into following the lies of your day, right? Continue to remain. And what he says is, even in the midst of all the chaos that you're experiencing, don't have the worry that you've attached your, your life to the wrong thing, right? Don't have the worry that you've attached your life to something that's unstable and going away. He says, trust that the work of the Holy Spirit that's at work in you will allow you to remain, will continue to grow you into the knowledge of Christ. So he tells them to abide. We see this language all throughout John, abide, abide, abide. And what he's saying there is to remain, remain in obedience to the commands of Jesus, remain in deep fellowship with Jesus, remain in deep connection. And the reason, as we look at our, our, our section of the passage today, what it, the reason that he says it's important for you to abide is because Jesus is coming back. Right? Jesus is coming back. And how you've abided will be the test of your reaction when you actually see him, Come on. right? Come on now. 
Jake mentioned last week, right, we are a people in waiting. We believe that Jesus, as he's promised, is coming back. And he's coming back to bring judgment and to bring restoration and to uproot sin however or wherever it's found in our world. And so John is reminding them of this promise. And what he's saying here is what is going to be your response to seeing Jesus? How will you meet him? And I think an important distinction here to make is he's not talking about seeing Jesus and wondering if you are saved. What he's saying is that your life and how you live will determine your emotional response to seeing Jesus face to face. There will be some sort of response. You will either meet him in joy and confidence or shame and shrinking back. And so let's look at these two emotions, right? Let's start with The shame, shrinking back. Why would someone have that sort of reaction to seeing Jesus face to face, right? I think someone would have that reaction because maybe they had stopped waiting for him. Maybe they had stopped thinking about him. Maybe um, they haven't been focused on their relationship with him. And so what has happened is as he's returned, he probably feels like an interruption to their plan. Probably feels like an interruption to their life. It's like if someone rings your doorbell at 2 a.m. in the morning, right? You're not going to be very happy about that because you weren't waiting for that person. Unexpectedly, if they ring your doorbell at that time, and the reality is you, you would be in a condition or a state of sleep, right? And so you weren't, you weren't, you weren't waiting because you were sleeping. And what John is saying is, hey, don't be asleep spiritually. Don't be asleep spiritually, because what can happen is we can maybe have the right ideas about Jesus, right? We can have the right ideas about God, but when it comes to how we actually live our daily lives, we live from some other confidence. We make our decisions from another place, not based on the wisdom that comes from, not based on the spirit at work, not even looking to him for direction for our lives. And so what he says is if that's your life, And maybe in the midst of life, you said, well, everything else seems so important. Like, you know what? I'm so busy. I got so many things going on. What he's saying is if Jesus returns and you see him, all that stuff that seems so big will have proven to just be an optical illusion. It will pale in comparison to seeing him in his fullness. And so if that's the case, you shrink back. Shrink back in shame. Connection hasn't been strong. But how could we have an emotional response if Jesus returns, if we leave here today and Jesus decides to come, right, as we're leaving? How can we expect to meet him in confidence? I think what John would say is we can meet him in confidence by living a life of righteousness, practicing righteousness. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's not a word that I use very often. Like, I can't remember the last time someone texted me like, hey, are you practicing righteousness today? I'd be like, dude, you got to be using the Amish keyboard or something, man, because I don't know anyone that talks like that, man. But you, it's a term we see all throughout Scripture and in John's letter. And what I can't do is give you a top 10 list of like BuzzFeed's practice and righteousness. This is what it looks like. Can't give you that. I, I, and, I, and I think a list wouldn't do it justice because what it is is an orientation of our heart that uh, puts a, that, that gives us a posture that says, God, you are Lord over every single aspect of my life. And this orientation of our heart right, determines how we apply everything. 
how we think about our finances, how we think about our talents, how we think about our treasures, how we think about our time. It's all lived under the lordship of Jesus. It's an orientation of our heart that says, my life is in total surrender to the lordship of Christ. It says that my highest ideal isn't actualizing myself. It's actually being an imitation of Christ. that you are my confidence and nothing else. And so what John says is, hey, if that's your life, if that's the way you're living, when Christ appears, you will have confidence because he will have been your confidence. You will continue that way. So you can meet him in joy. You've been waiting for him. It's not catching you by surprise. And I think what John wants the church to get is this wants us to hear that there is a day that is coming that is unavoidable. Right? There is a day that is coming that's unavoidable. Whether Jesus decides to come to us first or we go to him. Right? Where we will have this moment of thinking about what our life was all about. What are the things we've made our focus? You know, I was thinking about what that feels like, what that could feel like. I was thinking about... Um, what are some days that are like, what are some things that are unavoidable for like all of us in this room, right? And there's that old adage that goes, uh, we can all expect death and taxes, right? Now, taxes, not my favorite time of the year, but TurboTax tells me I'm doing a good job. So I'm just going to expect that they're leading me the right way. But death, death gives us a sudden perspective change, especially when it comes suddenly. Now, some of you guys know that recently uh, I experienced a painful, painful loss uh, because um, one of my best friends died. And he died in a totally sudden fashion. And how it went was I was actually thinking about this message. I was in this section. I was thinking about it. I'm thinking about, okay, like what's a perspective shift that makes you kind of consider everything suddenly in a moment's time? And as I'm working on that, I get a text from our friend Adrian in New York, and he goes, hey, um, I just want to let you know that Relly just died. And it's funny, man, like, it felt like life was just continuing all as normal, and then it just came to a halt. It came to this sudden stop, because I, I couldn't understand it. Like, I had just seen him post on his Instagram from his daughter's graduation earlier that day. I just saw it. And what had happened was he was 33, perfectly healthy, was a nurse, and he just died. Heart, heart attack. Just died on, on, on a run. And man, like, his passing has probably wrecked me like a few other things have. Um, it's made me reflect on a lot. Uh, it's made me reflect on life, right? Like, the time that we often think we have, you know, as we live our lives. It often, it also made me think about just what our friendship had been like in the last couple of years. Because I think coming out of college, like in college, we were super tight, spent hours and hours and hours together. And even thereafter, like we would check in with each other. We would send each other texts. We would like, we were really tight. So it wasn't just like a proximity thing of them being in New York and me being here. It was like we were doing the work of being good friends. And just over the recent years, like arguments would pop up, right? And instead of seeking forgiveness, we were seeking to be right. We would 
say, you know, I know I would say like, hey, I'll check in later. I'll send him a message later. You know, and I would give myself all these excuses and really it was just like a failure to be a good friend. And I don't say all that to be like, well, woe is me. I just think that's a reality to, to, to think about, right? How are we cultivating the relationships in our life? And the reality is with him is there was a faulty connection there. And so his death really brought everything to bear. Everything in the, that, that seemed so much more important that was separating us, that seemed so large, that seemed so looming, ultimately seemed very small. Sudden perspective shift. And truthfully, I was not prepared for that. And I've been thinking about that in relation to seeing Jesus, right? Meeting him. And I don't want that day to be like that. Whether I go to him or he comes for me, I want to be prepared. I want to be living my life, practicing righteousness, preparing myself to meet him face to face. It's funny that the return of Christ is described very similarly to how Relly passed, right? This sudden thing, this sudden thing where we thought everything was just continuing as normal, where Christ returns. And if we aren't careful, we can become so consumed with all the stuff in the world, all the latest gossip, all the celebrity news, all the ESPN updates, that's probably mine, all the, the latest series, the latest headlines, the latest politics, all the things that end up just consuming all of our attention, that end up just drawing us away from having a focus on Christ, on building our relationship, on growing our relationship with him. We lose focus on our walk. If I knew, to be truth be told, if I knew if Jesus was told, told me like earlier this week that he was coming back on Thursday, I'd probably be like, well, can you wait until the rest of Jack Ryan comes out? Right? It's this thought of like, just so much ends up feeling so much more important than the main thing of our relationship with him. Right? We think to ourselves, I'll be generous later. I'll be a good friend later. I'll take my sin seriously later. I'll, 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 I'll check in with that person later. And what John is saying is, hey, don't put off a life of practice and righteousness later. Start thinking about it now. Start thinking about it today. Think about the ways that God is maybe calling you to practice righteousness in whatever the sphere he has you in. Don't miss the main thing. I think for me, the area of righteousness where I want to grow in is if I had to like give it a sentence, is I would say, there is an urgency I want to live with that actually slows me down. There is an urgency to slow down. There is an urgency to be present with the people God has given me to love. There is an urgency to not have my attention split 50 different ways so I'm actually inattentive everywhere. There is an urgency to not see people as roadblocks to whatever I think the next thing is I need to get to. How can we actually love people if we're always rushing past them? It's hard to practice righteousness when life is just always a race to whatever we think the next thing is. Pretty much impossible. 
And so church, what have we made our focus? Are we preparing ourselves by practicing righteousness? Are we thinking about our relationship with Jesus and thinking about what it means to be a follower of him in whatever the sphere he has you in? So John says we are called to live this way. We're called to live this life of practicing righteousness. Now, for some of you guys, if you're wired like me, when I hear the part of a sermon like that, I'm like, all right, what do I need to do now? What do I need to do now? What are the parts of my life that I'm not practicing righteousness? And I start putting together the list, right? Now, is that what God wants us to live from? Does he want us to live from a list? Some of you guys are, I mean, you could just wrap up the sermon right now. You're like, I got it. I know. No, I think God wants us to live from something deeper than that. Let's continue on in 1 John uh, chapter 3, and we'll go to verse 3. It says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason, excuse me, why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. This we know. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So now we get to the crux of this. Because we don't live from the list, we live from our Father's love. And what John says is that we are able to walk in righteousness because we have been given an identity as children of God. We have been given an identity as children of God. We belong to God's family. And so just as Mufasa was telling somebody, there's something for you to embrace. That's what John is saying to the church. There's an identity for you to live from. There's an identity for you, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, to live from. And this section of scripture is one of my favorites because I feel like you really get the apostle's heart coming through. He is astonished for what God has done for us as his children. What does he say? He says, God has adopted us into his family. God has given us a name. He has given us an identity to live from. It says in Romans 8 that because of the work of Christ, right, we are able to relate to God as Father. We have the spirit of adoption that allows us to yell out, Abba, Father. And so if we, if we are followers of Jesus, we don't relate to God like the man upstairs, right? That was just always a weird term for me. It's like, what is that? That sounds creepy. Is this a dude up there? Like, what is he doing up there, you know? I'm down here. He's up there. Like, what's going on? God isn't the man upstairs. He isn't the unmoved mover. He isn't the watchmaker who sets everything in order and walks away. He is the father who is with us forever. Father with us for eternity. He is our father and we are his children. Now, one of the questions that often comes up with a passage like this is, well, who makes up the family? Who are the children of God? And I think we can look no further than John's gospel. He tells us, Who makes up the family? What does it say? It says, to all who did receive him, him being Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so becoming a a child of God comes by faith in Christ. There's no other way. And it's through faith in him that we are able to be adopted into the family of God. Now, that doesn't mean that people maybe who have not placed their faith in Christ are not made in God's image and loved by him 
but there is just a different depth of relationship that we have as children. And so what John wants the church to do is to grab onto this identity. He says, you have it now, not in some future state. You are as much as God's child now as you will ever be. Today. He says, you are God's uh, child right now. And what God has done is he has given you a new heart. He has given you a new nature to live from. He has imparted his nature to you. And uh, he brings you into this process where he will ultimately take you and make you like Christ. And so what John says is that in the midst of this, don't be surprised when people who are outside of them, people who, uh, who have not placed their faith in Christ, think you're absolutely crazy. They think you've lost your mind. And oftentimes in that, we try to like put together the best sort of argument to sway people. But really, who we are and what God is doing can only be understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the world does not understand that. But you know what? We, we know each other. Like I think about the times I've had coworkers and like they haven't even had to, they haven't had to say something like, hey, we're going to love on our customers today or something like that. We just know. There's just a connection I know. And I'm like, are you a follower of Jesus? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. You know, and there's a, there's a reality to that. It's not just uh, conditioning. There's a reality that we as believers, as the family of God, we resemble our Father. So we recognize one another. And so what John says is this. He says that what we do as the family of God is we hold on to that promise that we will see Jesus, that we will see Christ, right? That we will appear and we will be like him. And what he says is that even sometimes in the midst of life right now, we may not fully understand what it means to be a child of God. Sometimes that just feels like a church word. And like, I don't, you're like, I don't know what to do with it, but I believe it. And it's like, John's like, yeah, that's about right. You can't fully understand what this means until you see Jesus face to face. And then you'll get the understanding of the depth, the true understanding of the depth of the Father's love for you. And so in all of this, what John is saying is hold on to the hope. Hold on to the hope of Christ's return. Hold on to the hope that God is taking you on this process where every part of you, maybe that's, that you've experienced the reality of brokenness and uh, pain in your body or pain in your mind, all of this will be taken away. God is taking you on a process to glory where you will see Jesus and be like him. And in the meantime, hold on to him. And what you do is you make your position be what precedes your conduct. You let your position as a child of God be the fuel, be the power that allows you to live in righteousness. You see, whenever conduct is talked about in the New Testament, it doesn't start with what we do. It starts with who we are. Who we are. What God has done for us. The power he's given us. The identity he's given us. That's the starting place for a life of righteousness, not our own sweat and effort. And so John says, we, we, we live in this because, right? We live a holy life because we are children of God. We live from a place of love, not to earn God's love for us. And what he says is this, 
let your position precede your icon. Let your identity precede your conduct. Let your position precede your conduct. Because if you don't get this, your life will be out of alignment. And I think one of the foremost places you see this is when it comes to sport. Right understanding of position leads to right conduct. Wrong understanding have made some really memorable moments. Let's throw those up on the screen. So top left-hand corner there, we have Michael Jordan. And... At some point in the 90s, for some reason, he thought he was a baseball player. <laughs> Now, he looks really focused in this picture, but I'm pretty sure he struck out. <laughs> right? It's like, dude, you are the greatest basketball player of all time. What are you doing? Live out of that. Why are you embracing this other thing? Greatest basketball player of all time. I don't care what Jim Mullins says, man. <laughs> I don't care. Picture right below it, Super Bowl a couple years ago, Seahawks and Patriots. They're lined up there on the one-yard line. They got Marshawn Lynch, one of the greatest running backs uh, of our day, in the backfield. They're right there. They could just run it in, score and win. And what do they do? They throw the ball. It's like wrong understanding of your position. You got the greatest person, the greatest running back who can run right. Just run the ball, man. Now, that last picture, that's not an athlete. That's just me. Um, and the reason why I put that up is like, that was the time I tried to grow my hair out. And wrong understanding of position here. Wrong understanding of position here. Because all I had to do was look to the right. That's my dad. And that is my future. And so your boys embrace the low cut, all right? I realize my position is that I'm a child of Roy Williams. I'm looking in the mirror. Right position, right conduct. Not only am I growing in resemblance to my heavenly father, I'm growing in resemblance to my earthly father too. So where's the starting place? For your identity? Have you embraced your identity as a child of God? Have you taken grasp of the position that you've been given as a part of God's family? What's the identity that you are living from? What's the story you're telling yourself about your life? Does it start with, I'm a child of God? Have you forgotten that this is the identity that God has given you? You are in Christ. See, so much of when we think about fighting sin and uh, living for God, we, we think the starting line is ourselves. The starting line is first, as we put our faith in Christ and we live from our Father's love. It's our position preceding the conduct. And I think what can happen often is maybe in the fuzziness of what it means to be a child of God, maybe in the lack of clarity or certainty that we feel in that. What we do is we look to all these other identities to be the ones that we base our lives off of, the ones that we actually live from. We look for all these other identities that are not bad, but they're not meant to define us. And so what happens is we place our identity as a child of God on top of all these other ones. We may say like, yeah, I'm a child of God, but really like I'm an artist. 
I'm a, I'm a child of God, but really my primary identity is being a, a, a mom or dad. My primary identity is being a student. It's whatever you introduce yourself as when you go to the dinner party, right? If somebody introduced himself like, hey, I'm a child of God, you'd probably, in your mind, you wouldn't be thinking that highly of them. You'd be a little annoyed with them, to be honest with you. You'd be like, well, that's presumptuous. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not. This is what God said. This is the most important one of all the bunch. And what happens when we place our identity in all these other places? Well, the reality of brokenness and sin and uh, all the hard things of life come. And they start coming for all those identities. You lose the job. Kids are sick. You're not doing as well in school. Marriage is on the rocks. And what happens is all these are, as all these identities are attacked, what we start doing is questioning our primary identity. We start questioning the Father's love for us. We start questioning our status as God's children. And we feel like we're being unraveled to the core when really the problem is we've made the wrong thing our core. Made the wrong thing our core. And here's what I know. As I know that there is an enemy that loves nothing more than a believer with an identity crisis. Loves that. Right? He'll go so as far as to give you everything that you ever could have desired just so that you will make all these other things your confidence. And when they're taken away from you, you start to question God's goodness. You start to question his love for you. That's the position the enemy wants you in. It's thinking that you are the worst of your sin. It's the thinking you are the best of whatever you think you've accomplished. It's to think all those other things, think you are all these other things besides being a child of God. And so here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to fall for that trick. If our status as being a child of God is our primary thing, is with a river that our, the rest of our life flows from, then we can be certain that no matter what the season is of our life, no matter how much things get shaken up, that we have an unshakable identity as children of God. Unshakable. That our lives have been attached to this mountain that will not be shaken. That no matter how shaky things are, it, the stability of the road we're on is uncompromised. Yeah. And as Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the Father's love. Nothing can separate us from it. You see, we can only get there with the right understanding, with the recognition that there's nothing greater that we can go out and get that's better than what we've already received. Father's love for us. There's nothing better to define us. And the irony of it all is that when we get this, when this becomes concrete, is when we can do all the other identities well. Is when we can be the present and loving father. Is when we can be the, the, the student who's working not to approve themselves. Like, what happens is these things get put in their proper place because they're not meant to define us. And we can do them from a place of freedom instead of feeling like they're ruling over our lives. So we want to centralize ourselves. We want to center down in our identity, our God-given identity. Church, call today is to embrace it, to walk in it, to walk in righteousness, knowing that 
the one who has started the work in saving you will see it to completion. Keep your eyes on him. Set your mind on him. Trust in his work that he will see to his completion. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so now we come to the table. And we come to the table remembering everything that we've talked about today. None of it could could have been gained by our own effort. None of it could have been gained by our own sweat. It all came because of the work of Christ. What he did, the work that he saw to completion and going to the cross and bearing the sin of us when he had no sin of his own. And in it, as we talk about the Father's love, at the cross we see the perfect vision of the Father's love, sending his son to die for us while we were still sinners. And so we come each week remembering that love, remembering that it's that love, it's that identity that we've been given that defines us and that allows us to actually live for God. We remember what Jesus has done and what it means for our lives. So I'm going to pray and we'll continue in singing in a moment. Even as I pray and get some time to think about this message is don't dismiss that, that question about identity. Don't think it's like just a pie in the sky thing. There is an identity we all have in our minds that we live from. That's the control center for our decisions. If that is out of alignment, if you haven't grasped this reality that you are a child of God, ask God to, to, to just show you that and to remind you of his love for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you, uh, God, that we have been given a name, that we don't have to go out and figure out where we belong, that where there is a family we belong to, there is a relationship that we have that defines our life greater than anything else that we may be doing. And so, God, I pray that we are able to live from your truth. I pray we are able to live from your love. And, God, I pray that uh, this identity would be the one that shapes how we live all of life. So what we say here can be true, that all of life is all for you. So God, lead us this week. If there are places maybe where we have, where we're acting out of alignment to the identity you've given us, show us, God. And allow us to come in confession to you, God, knowing that you want us to direct us back on the right path. God, be our confidence, be our vision as we sung earlier. And God, lead us until that day where we see you in glory.